So while we're waiting for everyone to come in, let me do a sound check. Can you hear me way back there? Yeah? Okay. So let's sit quietly for a few moments while everyone continues to come in. It's not quite 7.30 on my clock here. You're all being more and more on time. (laughs) That's good. So this evening I'd like to speak about the ecology of compassion, the ecology of compassion, which is the interrelationship between our inner and our outer world. And I'm going to be um, repeating some of the things that um, my sister Dara talked about so beautifully last night, the Four Noble Truths, and maybe adding on to it a bit. Uh, because compassion and the Four Noble Truths really come together. It's said that after the Buddha's enlightenment under the great Bodhi tree in India, 2,600 years ago, when he profoundly opened to, understood, and realized the liberating knowledge of the Four Noble Truths, which are, this is a little repetition, the truth of suffering, and I'm going to interchange vulnerability sometimes for the word suffering. And you'll understand why when, as I go on. The first noble truth in Pali, that ancient language that the Buddha's teachings were uh, given in, in writing and um, to us, so it reached us to this day. Um, Pali was the ancient language that the teachings were given in. Those two words are dukkha, satcha, dukkha, satcha. And satcha means the truth, and dukkha means suffering. So that word, those two words together means the truth of suffering, the fact of suffering. That's the first noble truth. The second noble truth is a cause of suffering, The third noble truth is the possibility to realize the end of suffering. And the fourth noble truth is 
the path of practice that leads to the end of suffering, which is the Eightfold Noble Path. It's said that even with this rare and precious understanding, the Buddha was reluctant to offer the teachings to others around him because he thought listeners without direct empirical experience would be stuck in theoretical conceptualization, theoretical knowledge, and people really needed to practice, not just to understand cognitively or theoretically. So what happened during that time, to make a longer story short, is that it said that a celestial being, and you'll hear this word deva or dewa, uh, was uh, appeared to the Blessed One. And this celestial being reminded the Blessed One that there are beings who are suffering in this world, but with little dust in their eyes. But with little dust in their eyes. That means they, these beings are able to hear the teachings, to practice the way to the end of suffering, and to actually arrive there. We are those beings. These, this practice has been handed down so that we who are here could hear them. And we're here because we have some deep intuitive knowledge that some of these understandings will help us from what, wherever we're coming from in our lives, from our culture, from our religious beliefs, from our philosophical understandings, or any way that we live our lives, we can add this to our lives. So we don't have to put things aside. This is just additional understanding to help us with anything that we're doing in our lives, any way that we're living our lives. So it's with that reminder that compassion arose in the heart of the Buddha as strong as a strong and very natural inclination. And from that compassion, he decided to share this liberating knowledge acquired through his own experiential understanding. So these precious teachings we're all benefiting from today are coming from that energy, from that stream or that great river of compassion, and we are receiving that current. We are riding also on that when we really check in to that natural inclination of compassion ourselves. So it's this great river of compassion that is the current, the force that we are also riding on in our own lives. We may call it different names, but this force that all of us in our own ways want to understand life more deeply. We want to receive and to give life in ways that will benefit ourselves and others more. So it's said that compassion is one of the most beautiful feelings a person can experience in one's life. When our hearts are open, and it can even be open to pain, to pain in others around us, to pain in our own hearts, and we don't go with the you know, current force of these default settings and respond in habitual ways. Usually when it's difficult, either outwardly or inwardly, we strike out at or we turn away from, we run towards what's most easy, and we let the default settings of our mind, those deep habit patterns, take over. 
But we can learn to have this uh, practice in genuinely caring and connecting with our hearts as we open to how it is in the world. We're able to open to our own hardships, the hardships of others, the vulnerability, the deep inner wounds that we have. We start to understand that these deep inner wounds our experiences all beings have. And we start to connect at first, not in our shared caring or compassion for one another, but we start to connect first in understanding that we share this suffering, we share these deep inner wounds. We have these as human beings. So instead of closing down or turning away or distracting ourselves, avoiding or even striking out because things are too hard to face, we learn to just allow ourselves to feel it. And this is the great courage that we develop here in order to do this practice. So it becomes even more beautiful and sometimes rare to us as uh, beings that are more very deeply connected with our cultures, when we can have this unconditional care for the vulnerability of our own hearts. As uh, peoples connected to our cultures, um, we have this kind of we mentality. So our understanding is not for ourselves first, you know, and what we may be going through, but it's just automatically for others. You know, how can we help our family, our tribe, our community, other people in uh, we love. So we are part of it, but we don't give ourselves that compassion so much. And in this compassion practice, we start to understand how to give that deep care to ourselves as well. Coming to a place like this is a place where we're deeply caring for ourselves where we're giving ourselves the permission to go inside and be with what's there instead of the the usual what's happening with everyone else. I mean, I was telling one of the little groups I was in today that I have a lot to learn still in this because I, I get up in the morning and the first thing I'm thinking about is how are my children? How are the grandchildren? How's my family? How are people I love? You know, people are always... So instead of taking time for myself to have a cup of coffee and a piece of toast or something, it's I'm checking in on everybody else. And then I, dang, I did it again. You know, I can't even be with myself. Um, It's such such a deep, deep, um, very deeply intergenerational karmic thing for us as beings, we beings, you know, not just thinking of myself. So we start being able to face that vulnerable, those tender parts of ourselves, the parts where we feel this um, compassion fatigue in a way, where we're giving it away to others and not taking some of it for ourselves. It's said that compassion, uh, this ability of compassion is most powerful ally to uh, pure awareness because it allows awareness also to reflect clearly without closing down, without turning away from, being able to be with 
what it is aware of. So compassion really helps this uh, mindfulness, this awareness training that we're all in. When we can feel it, it doesn't feel like we're weak when we can feel true compassion. It feels like a gentle strength, a gentle courage that's opening up in us. It's this ability to open to how things are within and all around us. That's the ecological part. So that um, we have this deep connection with all of life. It gives us this feeling of grace. Sometimes people describe it as grace. This grace comes upon us. And in the midst of great difficulty, we're able to stay with it, with a clear seeing and an open heart and a a discernment to know what to do, what to say, or what not to do, what not to say. Sometimes we don't realize we have the choice to stand up for what we want to stand up for in a way that knows this isn't the right time to say something. Maybe I can be clearer when I kind of let the mind be stiller to discern what is the right movement, what are the right words, and to be able to go forth with that, actually in a strong way. It doesn't have to be angry, but it can still be really strong. So in some mysterious way, by opening to our own emotional crisis within not just the crisis around us, which can beat us down energetically, we can feel so spent, but to open to what's going on within us, even though it's difficult, it makes us feel like a complete human being. It's almost like um, we go around facing so many other pains around us that this human being here is forgotten. I often talk about it as abandoning myself for the sake of others. So we're able, more able to face our broken hearts and our losses, our vulnerabilities, to take care of ourselves so we can take care of others. In an old journal, I found a passage where I'd written about a quiet desperation. And when... um, One of my teachers, my first teacher, Anagarika Manindra from India, came to live with me uh, for a while because he was going through some healing process. He had some surgery, and um, I was asked to take care of him for a few months. So he came uh, to my house, and I asked him, what is this quiet desperation? You know, I'd report to him what I was feeling. And... um, he said, perhaps it's, it's a kind of spiritual urgency that you have. This feeling of, we call in Pali, samvega. This spiritual urgency to get to the bottom of understanding life and understanding ourselves. And to know it for ourselves and not just accept another person's understanding of it and live in that understanding and say, oh yeah, that's right. Just uh, you can just take it in and live vicariously that with somebody, someone else's wisdom. But we really want to know our own wisdom. It's why we come to difficult 
uh, difficult experiences or difficult um, uh, practices like this. This isn't an easy practice to do. Um, I tell this story in this talk a lot, so some of you may have heard it, but I was reading, I was kind of bored once um, traveling and I picked up a book and it was kind of like a spy book and these two spies were investigating something and they were kind of talking about what they did that was really cool, that was really like courageous or different and one spy started talking about what he was doing, uh, spying on different countries or whatever, different leaders and the other spy said, well, I do Vipassana practice. <laughs> and that was in the book. You know. I was so, I said, wow, uh, this getting getting to a lot of places in the world. And, uh, and actually the other spy said back to this person, wow, that's really hard, you know. So this is not easy what we're doing because we have to take a, lo- take a look at up a lot of truth in life. It's not easy to open to that. So the meaning uh, that um, Manindra said to me, he, I, I asked him at that time, well, what is the meaning of my life anyway? What is a reason for my being born as a human being? And without hesitation, he said, the meaning of your life is to develop compassion and wisdom. Just like that was so clear. It was made it so easy. And so, you know, I took that in and um, I realized that these two are the most important things to pay attention in life with because one of them, compassion, makes you pay very caring attention and intention to be a healing force with others and oneself in this life. The compassion works on the relative level, but also that helps us open to the absolute level, the absolute level of the truth, which is wisdom. And I'll, I'll mention some things about that also. So it gives us a capacity to open to wisdom. We wouldn't be open, able to open to the deepest truths without compassion. So it helps us to open to both qualities uh, of, of those in our lives those qualities in our lives, while both on the outer level, while we're doing this work on the inner level. So this quality of compassion is an equally important part of what is called the two great wings of the Dharma, the two great wings of the Dharma, compassion and wisdom. Each of of these strengthens the others and helps the others uh, become stronger and greater and more deeply engraved in our in our actions, in our thoughts, in our words and deeds. And from that, it helps us to see deeply into the nature of life. I'd like to read a quote from His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. Mm. Now a few words on the combination of wisdom and compassion. In Tibetan Buddhism, these are considered the two most important aspects of practice. Just like a bird needs two wings to fly, a very compassionate person without wisdom is only a likable fool. (laughs) 
and a person with wisdom and no compassion is like a lonely hermit in an ivory tower. Both reinforce each other and in, in a good way when, when we're really taking them for what they are. Both reinforce each other and once we realize how interrelated we all are, it is hard not to feel some level of compassion and once we feel compassion to others, we realize our deep interconnectedness. So we talk about this a lot, about being interconnected, being one, all of that kind of words we use to really feel not separate from one another. But this um, deep understanding of interconnectedness needs a lot of compassion. The Dhamma or the Dharma means the truth of how it is, the true nature of reality. So this is the wisdom part, which I'll fill in bit by bit, uh, hopefully during this talk. The wisdom part of these two great wings. This is what we're opening to understand more deeply here in this practice. We're learning through, um, in this uh, methodology, to unfold in a very natural way, to understand and deeply take in the experiential absolute truth of the Dhamma. So in these rare conditions that we have here, where there's more quiet and stillness in the outer environment, and there's relative solitude and less distraction here, the inner environment quiets down. And again from His Holiness, who says, the Dalai Lama, who says, the absolute truth cannot be realized within the domain of the habitual forces and patterns of the mind. All great traditions have told us it is through the heart. It begins with deeply caring for ourselves and others. So with these various meditational skill sets we learn here, our minds and hearts can become at times like a still forest pool. And we're able to witness what is going on beneath the outer layer of busyness, the ruffled, uh, the ruffledness of the pond of our lives. Don't allow us to see more deeply into that pond of our hearts and minds. So of course there can be many beautiful experiences But also we open to the fact of that vulnerability. Sometimes I interchange the word dukkha with vulnerability. Because in our process here we're beginning to become, of course, much more aware of the vulnerability of all of life. But we see that when we look within too. Like everything's changing moment by moment. And we realize, oh, we want to capture that understanding that we get just got, but the words are all gone, the concepts all gone, and it's just like a cloud went by that was really had a lot of power to it, but it's gone now, you know. And we see because of this moment-to-moment understanding of anicca, of impermanence, we can't hang on to anything. So we begin to learn that more and more deeply, that kind of vulnerability. And I'll fill that out a little bit more too later. So we're born into this world of great flux, of great vulnerability, inwardly and 
uh, of course, outwardly, and then our inward uh, reaction to it or response to it. So we open to the situations of the world around us, economically, politically, environmentally, socially, each one affecting one another, all of those changes taking place. And we may read this same old news over and over again, you know, one week isn't so different from another, but it's always affecting other things. The hunger experience worldwide in our own communities like in, in Hawaii, where I live, we have one of the um, biggest problems of homelessness there um, compared to the population. And I, I think a lot of people go there because it doesn't get cold in the winter, you know, and they can live in the, in the forests, in the jungles quite easily sometimes. Sometimes I think they have a better life than I do because <laughs> um, they can live in nature a lot. But there's hunger, there's hunger, there's stress. You know, what am I going to do when I get sick? All of that. So I'm remembering Mother Teresa who helped so many people in India. She said, there are many in the world dying for a piece of bread, but there are many more dying for a little love. So there's this hunger for that love too. You know, just being um, acknowledged. The unrest and injustice in the world. Uh, we're not using this uh, venue, this this place of practice, to go into all the whys and wherefores of that. But I just wanna, I just wanna name it because it's amongst us and it's true. We're learning how to be still and quiet, so we can see more clearly within all this. So we're not going through the whys and wherefores of it here, but we're, we'll be able to in a clearer, more compassionate way, in a way with more courage. So the unrest and injustice in the world around racism, around sexism, ageism, gender bias of all kinds, much, much more. And the fact that it's very hard for people, really what we think are intelligent people, to actually acknowledge that. This is one of the hardest things for me to face, for many of us to face. The elements of the earth, earth, air, water, fire, which Bonnie spoke about so beautifully also, endlessly interacting with one another. So we're tuning into that. We, we were given the teaching of that by Bonnie here because we want to see how one thing turns into another, even at that level of what we call this body made up of all this earth in wind, uh, fire, water. And we see even the changing nature at that level. So it's tuning into that. And we, we don't know it, but we're taking all that wisdom in. So this is uh, on the on the level of the earth, on this outer environment. These changes are causing the changing environmental conditions, which we have re- some responsibility for. The vulnerability of our bodies affected by all of the above. Just recently I read how our bodies are bombarded by a lot of these minute particles of plastic, you know, and just what is that going to be? I don't want to cause a lot of worry, you know. We're still, it's still under control. Uh, (laughs) 
but I started really thinking about that and I'm not wanting to use so many plastics. The aging process, old age, sickness, and death, part of the vulnerability of life. And in our minds and our hearts in our ever-deepening practice, we begin to notice the habit patterns, the default settings of greed, hatred, and delusion in our own hearts, the lack of impulse control. I mean, we see it in some individuals, you know, seen around us, not to mention any names, but (laughs) I should say that. But we see it in ourselves too, right? We got we got, have these impulses to uh, do or say or think something, and it just goes on its way because we don't have the understanding and the practice to know that there can be an un, the, uh, end of suffering in just one of those moments. You know, when we're not acting out our greed, in some way, that's the end of suffering. When we're not acting out our aversion. That doesn't mean we can't act out our courage, I want to say, with that. Because sometimes people think we need aversion to act in the world, and sometimes it is helpful, I must admit. But actually, we can be really strong and really loud and really persistent without aversion. And people will listen more because, you know, they don't have to name us some radical fool or something. But we can be really uh, effective in the world that way. So we begin to understand that there have been these underlying causes and this feeling of a sense of dis-ease, disharmony within ourselves and in life in general. So this is what we're facing in the first noble truth. So it's said that we would not be able to take this path of the four noble truths which lead to the end of suffering unless we really have compassion. Because it's not possible to open to the first noble truth unless we have this first compassion to be able to face it. So I want to connect this beautiful quality of compassion to the four noble truths. In the turning of the wheel of the Dharma, uh, the Buddha laid out these four noble truths. And he started out with a statement of reality that we're all faced with as human beings. This is the first noble truth, dukkha sacha, which means there is the truth of suffering. So it was brought out during a time when um, that truth of suffering wasn't really taken as the first step to open to. And so he wanted to make like an understanding that this is the sickness that we all have, that there is this truth of suffering. And it was like kind of naming what the dis-ease is. Dukkha sacha. And we start to feel this in ourselves. Um... I've heard from people around me, close people in the Dharma around me, that this one person said they were not able to really understand dukkha because there was such a um, denial that, oh, I'm not suffering, everything's fine in my life. And you pro- if you hear Steve Armstrong's talk on um, the first, on the Four Noble Truths, he, he would say that in his talk. 
when his, he came to his first retreat and they talked about this, he said, I'm not suffering, you know, my life is fine. But when he came to realize and see what was going on in his body and actually open to what was going on in the world, that was the opening to the first noble truth, dukkha satcha. And what helps sometimes to open to that is to realize the oppressiveness of life, the oppressiveness of nature, just in this body. You know, we we get hot and we it gets oppressive and we need to find a way to get cooler or we get too cold and we can't stand that. We're always moving to uh, around to try to control life in a way. So this is where we begin by acknowledging that there is a problem here. You know, we can't just keep running away from it. So when the Dhamma first came to my life, I heard this first noble truth. And what happened is that I realized that it met me where I was. It wasn't like I had to become some person that looked very angelic. And um, then that was when my spiritual life would begin. But it gave me the permission to accept myself as a human being, you know, with all the foibles and the inadequacies and the limitations that I had as a human being. And uh, my experience of being human was okay when I heard the first noble truth, that it wasn't uh, saying that I had to be something else, someone else, or be anything other than what was coming up in my life, in me. So I really felt accepted. I really felt like I belonged to this practice because it really said it how it is for me. I wasn't wanting to be in denial of it anymore. So throughout his life, I came to understand that the Buddha was a realist and he said things as they really are. He didn't pull any punches, as they say. He really wanted us to understand. So it was not a pessimist. Sometimes this uh, first noble truth is presented as life is suffering. You know, like, what a way to invite people to the Dharma. Uh, <laughs> So I like to say there is a truth of suffering. That's how it's translated very directly. So what he also taught is that we needed to open to it with tenderness and the caring of compassion, that this was absolutely necessary in our lives. It said that um, the proximate cause for, uh, for compassion to arise is suffering, is the realization of suffering. So the first noble truth can also be our opening to compassion. But compassion helps us to open to that truth even more deeply. So one of our quiet teachers in my life, um, people don't often hear of him, he was a sort of a one of the great assistants to Sayadaw Upandita. His name was Bilin Sayadaw because he came from that part of Burma. And when I was opening to a new layer of understanding in my uh, practice, he was there. And he was, I would, um, I would report to Pandita, then I would report to him. And when I reported to him, one time 
I said that it's really very difficult to open to this layer of my practice now. And um, then told him details of that. And he didn't try to explain anything to me, like that I had to know something more, you know, in a kind of theoretical way. He just acknowledged my suffering by showing compassion. That's all he did. He said, it's true, isn't it? It's very hard. And he wasn't saying to me, oh, I hope you feel better, or, you know, like some people say to us when, you're better now, right? Like, they want us to be all better. (laughs) And instead of acknowledging how it is. So I feel most seen and most acknowledged when, um, you know, when those things can be reflected, when it must be hard for you. I don't know how it is hard for you, but it must be hard. And it it helps me to kind of know I have um, a par- partners in life like that who can see the truth. So he presented that compassion in his way of being. And sometimes that's a real gift to us. You don't have to have even, um, you know, a great deal of learning and when you practice this. Actually, it's said in, in Burma that the ones who kind of liberate their minds first are the ones without too much knowledge <laughs> of the Dharma. They're younger, younger. Um, they're, by the way, they're, I'm told, I'm just repeating to you what I was told, they're mostly women. Uh, <laughs> um, or uh, female-bodied persons and uh, and they're mostly younger. So um, sometimes this gift of compassion is simply someone bearing witness. And so by we can help others by having compassion. So this opening to something difficult is in our lives, in the world around us, so it's so important. And sometimes we, you know, when we're opening to something difficult, we think, oh, what this is supposed to be is very calm and blissful. And But actually, all of us, when we've opened to our practice more, and we realize, we open to, and we allow the feeling of what's difficult within ourselves, our teachers are happy. You know, when you come with a lot of calm, and it's to them it's like, oh, oh ho-hum, you know, because that's not what it's all about. It's really, I mean, you get there, it's okay, but still you have to see the impermanent nature of that. It's by opening to these deeper places that we gather more strength. So I want to read something from Khalil Gibran that is has been really important to me. When I heard this, quoting, Your pain is the breaking of the shell that encloses your understanding or your wisdom. Even as a stone of the fruit must break open that its heart may stand in the sun, so must you know pain. And if you could keep your heart in wonder at the daily miracles of your life, your pain would not seem less wondrous than your joy. So, yes, it's wonderful to be joyful, and that's impermanent too. 
Um, But opening to the pain is allowing all those places that have been ignored and those places that have been in denial with us to come up and out. And so that's, we must allow that to happen or else they're always just kept there, pushing and pulling us in our lives. So it allows us to have this friendly relationship with what's going on inside. So compassion is called the quivering of the heart that opens to this kind of pain, to the various kinds of pains that we open to. The heart quivers because it gives us a signal that there's energy to face it. There's energy to be with it. It's not the energy to run away, but to see things as they are. So I love this Buddhist teacher, um, Agnes Au, A-U, who wrote in the Shambhala Sun. And she's writing, these things are said metaphorically, by the way. I see this path is actually an invitation to strip naked at one's own pace and in so doing to experience the vividness of an unfiltered life. And you can tell what that means, right? It's to be able to see things without seeing through the, the lens of our habit patterns of greed, hatred, and delusion. Sometimes I'd come in, or I'd hear from my own teacher, the uh, Upandita, another one of my teachers, who would ask me and others when we would come in, what color glasses are you wearing today, Yogi Kamala? Like, what lens are you seeing through? Greed, hatred, delusion. And then we see everything we see within ourselves and outwardly through that lens. So that, that, that's a habit pattern we're learning to overcome. When those come up, then we're able to see them for what they are. Oh, this is greed, this is hatred, this is delusion, and the different manifestations of them. And when mindfulness is continuous and stays strong with it, what happens is that that awareness brings in the wisdom to see that moment as it is, that it's impermanent, it's impersonal, not self, and it's also unsatisfactory. It means that it's not going to give us satisfaction in the long run. Um, we like that when it's painful, but we don't like that when it's a, a pleasant feeling. But still, both are true. Pleasant, unpleasant, even neutral p- feelings arise and pass away. So we start to live, actually in alignment with the true nature of life instead of not in alignment with it, which causes a lot of suffering in ourselves. So feelings and states of mind we haven't acknowledged so much before because they're so hard to bear. We're able to bear them. We're able to really look at in a place like this. That's why those people said, oh, that's really, that's really hard to do because we learn the underpinnings of this personality and what it's made up of. You know, this thing, mind-body continuum, which we call self, has all these parts to it. We're beginning to learn all these various parts, the underpinnings of our personality and breaking those down even more, bit by bit, moment by moment. And each part, each moment seen as impersonal, um, always moving, arising, passing away, can't hold on to anything. 
So we, we start to get that, uh, in, internalize and understand that wisdom. And we begin to learn how to live in a wise, compassionate way with all of life, even with that deeper wisdom. It's not scary as much as it is relieving in the long run. So I love this. Um, probably some of you have heard this saying, self-knowledge is not always good news. You know, when we look at this, uh, this was um, said by Lily Tomlin. And the other thing that this person said is, reality is a major cause of stress. <laughs> I try to avoid it as much as I can. And that's what we're doing a lot. You know, we don't feel good about ourselves, and, but we can't face those parts that come up, those parts of ourselves. It is hard. And I just want to name some things because they're, they're true as part of being a human being. These are the, uh, the relative truths of life, that there is shame, there is prejudice, there is unworthiness, there is judging oneself and others. There are deep habit patterns causing pain to ourselves and others. We see how deeply rooted they, these habit patterns are for ourselves. And then when we see it acting out in others, we, see, we understand with compassion how deeply rooted it is. So, um, as I, you probably all know, I, I um, have lived in Hawaii for 40 years of my life. For most of my life, I've lived there. And I live in a culture where uh, people of color are the majority. I don't know population-wise now because there's a lot of influx. And, but um, also... Um, so I, I get prejudice. <laughs> I know that in myself, being uh, in the normative there. And so I know, th- for I know that for myself because... I I have a hard time sometimes with with um, with tourists who feel entitled. I, I really have a hard time with that, and I, I just have a hard time with them. There's a there's a sign on the back of a lot of our cars that said "Slow down, this ain't the mainland," you know. <laughs> so um, I know that I, I can have that for myself. We. We have that feeling. So because I know that feeling, I know how painful it is. And especially it can be super painful if you're even unaware of it. I mean, that's delusion over all kinds of things, you know. You don't even see what's going on. But at least I can see it, and I know it, and I try not to act it out. Uh, Most of the time I don't, actually. But I do have some four-letter words that come out. Uh, You may think I'm quiet, but I'm just... uh, Sometimes I can be called badass Kamala. Um, So just... um, Don't bother Kamala. So I've learned to be that way because uh, I've raised kids on my own and all that. So His Holiness said, <laughs> let's get back to His Holiness. 
never mind about me, but <laughs> His Holiness says, until you understand the meaning of suffering for yourself, there will be still be a measure of hypocrisy to your compassion. Yeah. I can stand in line at the Logan Airport and somebody will come right and stand in front of me and just pretend they're, you know, they don't see me. (laughs) Just come and stand in front of me and I can look at them with the worst stink eye, you know. I'm really gracious in looking at them and I say, the line's back there. And, you know, I, I, I speak up, believe me. So I don't stand for that in my life most of the time. So you can be, when you know how it is in yourself, you can be strong and still, and still take action. I'm not talking about being all, you know, weak. You can be strong and have compassion and know how it is to suffer from not seeing that kind, those kinds of entitlement happening around us. So it gives us a sense of our own inner strength and courage. Our somehow we feel more complete. We're accessing that as human beings. And we're fulfilling our highest purpose and our deepest values. So the direct opposite of compassion, sometimes called the far enemy. The far enemy, is it's called that way because you can see it from afar. It's called cruelty the far enemy, the direct opposite. When we see our own painful conditions, because of our painful conditions, we strike inside. Sometimes we strike out at painful conditions outside of ourselves. Sometimes even harming others with our words, with our deeds, sometimes hurting others. Um, So cruelty is when we strike out with our action, with our words, But sometimes cruelty can be ignoring the pain in ourselves. That's a cruelty when we abandon ourselves or when we ignore the pain in others. Um, When we turn away, when we don't acknowledge somehow. So the indirect opposite... Uh, the, the direct opposite is cruelty, the indirect opposite or the near enemy is grieving, drowning in grief. Not this grieving, healthy process that we go through that's necessary, but it's when we're drowning in grief. When, we, when we're taking on or getting identified ourselves with the grief of another. And we're not standing in a strong place of compassion. And sometimes this is depicted in some of the commentaries of the Buddhist teachings as uh, somebody's um, kind of getting sucked into quicksand and the person out of seeming compassion but it's really um, you know this indirect opposite of grieving for them or maybe having pity for them or not having enough um, intelligence about it that compassion intelligence jump in the quicksand and that person sinks also. So we become not very beneficial to those around us. 
if we if we could stand by the side, standing on kind of like the firm ground of compassion and wisdom, we could find one way to help them from that place and not from the place of jumping in. So um, this example I'm going to give you is my own daughter, when the eldest daughter, and she was... <laughs> She went to a surgery, and I was with her in the hospital. And um, she was bed and kind of uh, writhing in pain. And she wasn't getting her pain medication for the surgery in time enough to, to help her, or not, maybe not getting enough. I don't know what the condition was. But she had been doing that for such a long time, and she had suffered for such a long time that I was standing against the wall you can imagine this and she was in the bed before me and she said mom you just got to do something you just go call the nurse do something and I was really tired and weak from being with her and I was just kind of slinking down the wall in a way like oh I, I don't know I'm so tired I've been up 24 hours and all that and she said mom mom I need you don't do that you know <laughs> so I said, yeah, okay, that's right, you know. <laughs> so sh- I needed somebody to remind me that I-, I can't, I just can't get weak, you know, be drowning in her suffering, identified with it. So are we doing that in our lives and what can we do about that? You know, how can we stand on firm ground? So... From our own deep experiences and our growing strength, we come to see that there's a growing sense of urgency in general to help and do what we can, right? All of us in the world. To offer our gifts, however insignificant we may think them to be, how can we offer our gifts and to touch the world, which is increasing in complexity and speed, and somehow, because of this complexity and speed, it's an increasing in our knowledge of the injustice in the world. And that can tear us down. So we really need how to stay uh, above all that, in a way. We need to touch our own humanity with simplicity and slowing down ourselves. So here we learn to slow down when we can. We, ner- we learn to touch ourselves, our own hearts, to touch the earth, to touch others with more kindness. So that's what we're doing on the ecological level around us more and more. But equally as strong, there's a growing spiritual urgency to go within. And that's why we're here, even though it's hard for us sometimes and we don't understand what is this all about, but we learn that we're simply recognizing and learning how to relax more around whatever's going on inside of ourselves, allowing that inner landscape to be known in a balanced way instead of ignoring it. You know, ignorance and delusion are one of the three poisons of humanity. Ignorance, delusion, ignoring So we need to get interested in this natural unfolding of nature. And we learn on this relative level, we come to know what creates harmony on this deep 
deeper and deeper levels. What creates happiness on the individual level and the social level? What habitual forces create an ecology of deepening peace and ease and harmony within? And then that can go out to the social level. We want to have a clear discernment by stilling the mind, seeing deeply into that still forest pool, knowing when we can incline the mind to compassion there for ourselves so that we can take courageous action wherever we need to take it, but first with ourselves. You know, like they say in the airplane, first put the oxygen on yourself before you help another. So granted, with our practice, we may not radically change the world, but in fact, we're transforming our own hearts and minds, and that can be a real possibility. I read a lot and take a lot of understanding and teachings from His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, so I quote him a lot, and one of the things he said that meant a lot to me is the, the most powerful disarmament is a disarmament of greed, hatred, and delusion in our own hearts, the letting go of that. And that's what we're learning how to do. But first it's facing it. And that sends ripples out into the world, um, not just in the circle of our, our beings, but from there it goes on and on and on. So this is really important. So His Holiness says, It is through compassion that we become thoroughly grounded in the conventional truth and thus prepared to receive the ultimate truth, the deepest, which are the deepest understandings, the ultimate truth, the truth of these three wisdom understandings, the impermanent, unsatisfactory, not-self nature of everything. And those may be strange words or what, how they come together, may not be so understood in in one's life but they will they will come more and more deeply to our understanding and will live they them out in our lives in a beautiful way compassion continuing on with his holiness compassion brings great warmth and kindness to both perspectives It helps us to be flexible in our interpretation of the truth and teaches us to give and receive help in practicing the precepts, in practicing non-harming. So these are the two wings of the Dharma, compassion and wisdom. And one of the teachers I took um, some teachings from when he lived in Maui, it's Aiken Roshin, Roshi, a great Zen teacher. And he talks about compassion a lot uh, in, his, in his books, in his way of being. And one time he said um, to us in his presence, we hear a lot about no self and think it's wrong to have a self. But on a relative level, we must respect there is this sense of self on this relative level. And this self on this relative level can be an agent of good in this world. So these two wings of the Dharma always coming together in our practice here in a very quiet but very, very deep way. 
We're learning this moment by moment, bit by bit. We're not making a Dharma talk in ourselves about it or what we're learning. But if you just can have the faith to open to your own heart, if you can do that, you'll learn a lot. And it doesn't mean that you're opening to a religion or what the what somebody else is saying. You're opening to what your heart's saying, what your heart is telling you. And this is compassion. And these two help us, this compassion and wisdom, help us to live a very complete life. So I'd like to end with um, this um, very beautiful poem by Dona Markova. It's... Um, very inspiring to me at this time in my life where I feel I'm in the, um, not in the winter of my life, but maybe in the, um, you know, autumn of my life that's um, closely approaching the winter of my life. I will not die an unlived life. I will not live in fear of falling or catching fire. I choose to inhabit my days, to allow my living to open me, to make me less afraid, more accessible, to loosen my heart, a wing, a torch, a promise. I choose to risk my significance, to live so that which came to me as a seed goes forth to the next as blossom, and that which came to me as blossom goes forth as fruit." So let's sit quietly for a few moments and just let the words dissolve and just be with our own hearts. May compassion and wisdom open for each one of us in its own unique way, in its own timing, to reveal the beauty of our hearts and our lives. <clears throat> 